This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nestled on the Gulf of St. Vincent is the city of Adelaide, the capital of South Australia. On the evening of November 30th, 1948, John Bain Lyons and his wife went for a walk on Somerton Beach in the Adelaide suburb of Somerton Park. From the promenade overlooking the beach, they noticed a man lying on the sand below, his head and shoulders supported by the seawall at the edge of the high water mark. Smoking a cigarette, the man extended his right hand toward the couple and then let it fall to his side. John was sure the man was drunk and checked his watch. It was 7 p.m. 30 minutes later, Olive Constance Neal and her boyfriend Gordon were on the promenade. Olive also spotted the man lying against the seawall. She thought he looked odd. His left hand was lying at a strange angle. She said to Gordon, perhaps he's dead. Gordon dismissed Olive's rash assessment, believing the man was simply asleep. The next morning, December 1st, John Bain Lyons was back at Somerton Beach for an early swim. He spotted some men on horses gathered over something on the seawall. He approached. Lying in the sand, in the same exact position, was the man he'd seen 12 hours earlier. Dead. John realized the wave the man gave him hadn't been a drunken hello, but the last-ditch effort of a dying man pleading for help. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thank you.
This week, we'll be investigating the mystery of the Somerton Man, also known as the Unknown Man. But the moniker most associated with this case are the words, Tamam Shud. The Persian phrase was on a slip of paper found in the dead man's pocket. Its meaning, it is ended. For over 70 years, the unexplained death of the unknown man has endured. Extensive and exhaustive attempts were made by the Australian authorities to identify the deceased, but with no success. Eventually, the public's help was enlisted. The investigation went worldwide. People have been trying to solve the mystery ever since. In today's episode, we will examine the initial investigation and the utter frustration of authorities as each and every avenue of inquiry lead to a dead end. Next week, we'll pour over the extensive theories that have been proposed over the years concerning who the unknown man could have been. Speculations range from a man on a trip to see an ex-lover, to a smuggler, even a Cold War spy. Police Constable John Moss of the Brighton Police Station received the call at around 6.45 a.m. A dead man was lying on the sands of Somerton Beach. Arriving at the beach, he found a fully clothed deceased male approximately 50 years of age. A cursory examination of the body revealed no knife or gunshot wounds. Constable Moss tried to ascertain whether there was any kind of struggle with an attacker. But since the sand around the body was relatively undisturbed, it seemed unlikely. Essentially, there was no evidence Constable Moss could see to indicate a violent death. The deceased was wearing brown trousers, a white shirt and tie, a brown knitted pullover, a gray double-breasted coat, and brown lace-up shoes with heavy knitted socks. A partially smoked cigarette rested on the right collar of his coat. It most likely fell from his lips once the Grim Reaper had collected him. Constable Moss conveyed the body in a police ambulance to the Royal Adelaide Hospital. At 9.40 a.m., Dr. John Barkley Bennett examined the body and certified life was extinct. He put the time of death at approximately 2 a.m. based on the rate of rigor mortis, the stiffening of joints and muscles post-mortem. After a casual inspection of the body and having noted a blue discoloration of the skin, Dr. Bennett put the cause of death as cyanosis, or poor circulation or inadequate oxygenation of the blood. But an autopsy would later be performed to learn more. Constable Moss then transported the body to the city mortuary, located next to the West Terrace Cemetery. The body was stripped of all clothing. A cardboard label with a registration number was attached to the big toe. Finally, the body was put on a steel rack and slid into a large refrigeration unit. Searching the deceased's clothing, Constable Moss found the following items. A railway ticket to Henley Beach and a bus ticket to North Glenelg, both suburbs of Adelaide. A packet of Juicy Fruit gum, a packet of Army Club cigarettes containing seven cigarettes of another brand, Kansitis cigarettes, a packet of Bryant and May matches, a comb, and a handkerchief. The deceased had no wallet, no passport, no money, no ration card, no Siemens ticket, no union membership card, and no military demobilization certificate. Lacking any kind of identification, henceforth, the deceased was to be referred to as the unknown man. On December 2nd, an autopsy was performed by Dr. J.M. Dwyer. The unknown man was 5 feet 11 inches tall, 
had hazel eyes and blonde reddish hair graying at the temples. He was muscular, had manicured fingernails and toes, and tanned legs. Also noted was that the unknown man had strong calf muscles, much like those you'd find on somebody who ran long distances, bicycled, or was a dancer. The autopsy revealed something Dr. Dwyer did not expect. Blood was found in the stomach, indicating that the cause of death was poison. Specimens were retained. Blood, urine, a portion of the liver and muscle, the stomach and its contents. Further analysis would be conducted for known poisons. All deaths in Australia come under the jurisdiction of the coroner. The police investigate the death and then bestow the report unto the coroner to certify. Most of the time, it's a simple matter. The deceased is identified, a cause of death certified, and a burial order issued. The death of the unknown man, however, would turn out to be anything but simple. On December 3rd, police photographer and fingerprint expert Patrick James Durham took the fingerprints of the unknown man. The task was arduous considering the rigidity of the deceased's fingers. But what proved even more difficult was redressing the body in order to take a series of facial and cadaver photographs. Detective H. Strangway of the Glenelg Police Station was assigned the investigation and forwarded the photos, fingerprints, and cadaver description to police headquarters throughout Australia. But the reports from the various headquarters came back negative. No John Doe's were a match for the unknown man. With no positive leads for identifying the unknown man forthcoming, it was time to go to the papers for help. The police were reluctant to involve the public. They knew they would be invariably flooded with tips, most of which would result in dead ends. Nevertheless, the papers were supplied a photo of the deceased and details of the case. Soon enough, the investigation was swamped with calls. In fact, over the years, the unknown man has been identified as 251 separate individuals by people hoping to find a missing husband, father, friend, or lover. Yet each and every time, the missing person was excluded because of descriptions that didn't match the unknown man. For instance, people described tattoos a missing individual had, hoping to use them to positively identify the body. But the unknown man didn't have any tattoos, bringing these leads to a quick and unsatisfactory end. Others would offer scars as a means of identification. The unknown man did have scars, three small ones inside his left wrists, a curved one on his left elbow, and another on his upper left forearm. But none of the missing individuals that people described had such scars. They were ruled out as well. Dental records were another consideration used to invalidate many claims. This was because the unknown man had a very rare dental condition. He was missing both of his lateral incisors, resulting in his canine teeth being directly next to his front teeth, like a vampire. Another distinctive feature of the unknown man was his unusual ear condition. His upper ear hollow, called the Simba, was much larger than his lower ear hollow, the Cavum. This specific attribute only occurs in roughly 1% of the population. One would think the unknown man's idiosyncratic character traits would have made enough of an impression on someone, somewhere, who in turn would remember him. Most importantly, remember his name. Unfortunately, this wasn't the case. 
The morgue hosted numerous viewings of the unknown man for people claiming to know his identity. But as the days passed, nature took its toll and the body started to decay. On January 10th, funeral director Lori Elliott of F.T. Elliott & Son carried out the embalming of the body. The police turned their attention to the unknown man's clothes for a clue as to his identity. They made inquiries in the garment trade and learned that the brown trousers he wore were made of crusader cloth, a quality wool blend not available for sale in South Australia. The trousers were most likely purchased in either Melbourne or Ballarat. The police intended to track down the sale of the trousers and pinpoint where the unknown man hailed from originally. But the promising lead was nixed when the Wilson manufacturers, who made the pants, informed the police that 3,000 pairs of those specific trousers were produced on a weekly basis. Tracing a single pair to a point of sale would be next to impossible. Despite all the considerable media attention the case had garnered, the police were no closer to identifying the unknown man. It was decided the investigation needed to extend its reach beyond Australia. Copies of the unknown man's fingerprints were sent to nearly every English-speaking country around the world, to no avail. Scotland Yard regretted to inform that the fingerprints didn't match any they had on file. The South Australian Commissioner of Police, W.F. Johns, actually received a reply from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover himself. But the results were also negative. The unknown man was proving to be an uncrackable enigma. At their wit's end, police decided that a dedicated team of investigators would be assigned to the case. On January 8, 1949, Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, a senior member of the Adelaide Criminal Investigation Branch, was placed in charge. Detective Sergeant Lean wanted to start searching hotels and boarding houses in Adelaide. The unknown man had a used bus ticket and an unused train ticket in his pockets, which meant he was a stranger to Adelaide, and travelers usually had a bag or a suitcase. Assuming the unknown man had belongings, they were somewhere waiting to be claimed, but of course, never would be. This was a massive undertaking. Adelaide was a big city, and there were hundreds of hotels and boarding houses. The public's help was requested once again. This time, however, the tactic paid off. On January 14, 1949, an unclaimed brown suitcase was found in the cloakroom of the Adelaide Railway Station. It was booked in on November 30th with ticket number G52703 between 11 a.m. and noon, the day before the unknown man was found dead on Somerton Beach. On January 19, 1949, Detective Sergeant Lean took possession of the suitcase belonging to the unknown man, and with it, he hoped, the key to this man's identity. We'll discover the contents of the suitcase in just a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On January 19, 1949, Detective Sergeant Lean took possession of a simple brown suitcase that he hoped belonged to the unknown man and began unpacking it for clues. Between the articles of clothing and toiletries inside the suitcase, one item stood out. A sewing kit containing orange barber's waxed thread, which wasn't sold in Australia. The same exact thread was used to repair the pocket of the coat the unknown man was wearing when he died. This was either one hell of a coincidence or the suitcase belonged to the unknown man. The police went with the latter. But once again, identification of the unknown man eluded them. The suitcase had no stickers or identification tags. As for the rest of its contents, there were the usual items one would find. A dressing gown, slippers, pajamas, socks, and handkerchiefs. But there were also unusual items. A cut-down table knife, stenciling brush, screwdriver, and a pair of scissors. It was suggested these tools could have belonged to a ship's cargo master. The stenciling brush is something that could be used to mark cargo. The table knife and scissors to cut and attach seals to boxes and crates. Furthermore, Lean noted that the unknown man had well-manicured hands, no calluses. His nails were neat and clean. These were definitely not the hands of somebody who did manual labor, which propped up the cargo master theory. Cargo masters weren't expected to do manual labor. They were in management. Police collected a roll of missing sailors, merchant seamen, and fishermen in the hopes of identifying the unknown man. But each and every time, the description simply didn't match the deceased. But there was an even more puzzling find in the suitcase. The name tabs on the majority of the clothing had been removed. On only a few items, a singlet undergarment, a laundry bag, and a tie, the names T. Keen, Keen with an E and Keen without an E, were found. Lean sent out a call to police headquarters across Australia and once again asked the public regarding the three names. Regrettably, the names matched no missing person records anywhere in the country. There was speculation the unknown man's real name had nothing to do with T. Keen, Keen with an E and Keen without an E. If he were trying to hide his identity by cutting the name tags out of his clothes, why leave three names to be found? As was frequently the case, there were more questions than answers. An inspection of a pair of trousers in the suitcase revealed a series of numbers in the pocket lining. These were laundry marks the cleaners put in clothing in case the tag was lost, so they could still identify the owner. An extensive search of laundries and dry cleaners was made, but none used the specific combination of numbers found in the unknown man's trousers. Although a police sergeant with the Hamilton police told Lean that several of the laundrymen he spoke to were of the opinion that the number sequence was the type used in England. 
Meanwhile, Lean spoke to an Egyptian man named Moss Kaipitz, who lived in Adelaide, who alleged that T. Keen, as written on the necktie, could actually be the anglicized version of Keenik, an Eastern European surname. If this was the case, the unknown man could have been Baltic, Yugoslavian, even Czechoslovakian. Hugh Poza, a tailor in Adelaide, informed Lean that the coat the unknown man was wearing was made using a feather-type stitch. This stitch, he asserted, could only be made with a particular machine found in the United States. This turned Lean's attention to a possible, previously overlooked clue that might indicate this man was American or had lived in the United States. In the police photos of the cadaver, the unknown man is wearing a striped tie. In Europe, tie stripes point from the left shoulder to the waist. In the United States, the stripes point from the right shoulder to the waist. The reason for this difference is military uniforms. An American soldier would sling his weapon over his right shoulder, a European soldier over his left. The tie the unknown man was wearing conformed to the U.S. standard. But this is far from conclusive evidence that the unknown man was American. This could simply suggest he was fond of American fashions. Just because you wear Italian-made shoes doesn't mean you're necessarily from Italy. So the unknown man was possibly from or had some kind of connection to England, Yugoslavia, the Baltics, Czechoslovakia, or the United States. Not exactly encouraging. And every clue Detective Sergeant Lean uncovered about the unknown man's identity only added to the mystery. But like any good mystery, the plot was about to thicken. In 1949, Professor John Burton Cleland was a doctor working in the Department of Pathology at the University of Adelaide. Lean asked him to examine the unknown man's clothing, hoping his expertise might uncover something they overlooked. While examining the trousers the unknown man was wearing the morning he was found on Somerton Beach, Professor Cleland did indeed find something. A small fob pocket was tucked away in the waistband of the pants. He confessed that the pocket was actually quite difficult to find. In this concealed pocket, Professor Cleland discovered a small piece of paper rolled into a cylinder shape. Carefully unrolling it, he noted its rough edges, clearly torn from a page of some sort. Printed upon the scrap was the Persian phrase, Tamam should, it is finished. Omar Khayyam was born on May 18th 1048, in the city of Nishapur in northern Persia. He was famous during his lifetime as an astronomer, physician, philosopher, and mathematician. But what he's most remembered, admired, and loved for is his poetry. In 1859, Edward Fitzgerald, an English poet and writer, translated a series of quatrains attributed to Khayyam into a book he called the Rubaiyat, which was the Persian word for quatrains. Frank Kennedy was the police roundsman for the local Adelaide newspaper, The Advertiser, meaning he covered the police beat for the city. Hearing about the slip of paper found in the unknown man's pants, he recognized the phrase immediately. He informed police that the words Tamam should could be found in a copy of the Rubaiyat. Certain editions had those exact words on the last page, which meant it is ended or it is finished. But a promising lead was yet again a trip down the rabbit hole. 
The Rubaiyat was a huge success when first published in London in 1859. Over the years, it became renowned the world over. To date, 650 various editions of the book have been published. It's been translated into 70 languages, set to music by at least 100 composers, and illustrated by dozens of artists. Taking into account the popularity of the book, finding the original edition the slip of paper was torn from would be like finding a needle in a haystack, a very big haystack. The Tom Amshud slip of paper was copied and sent out to police headquarters and the media. Libraries and bookshops were checked throughout Australia for a copy of the Rubaiyat with a page torn out, but none could be found. Another dead end. Meanwhile, police were concerned that as the unknown man decomposed, he would be unrecognizable to anyone trying to identify his body. Even though the unknown man had been embalmed, his body was still slowly deteriorating. Embalming slows decomposition, but doesn't stop it indefinitely. In due time, photographs would be the only means of identification at the detective's disposal. So the police got creative. They consulted with the South Australian Museum about producing a plaster cast of the unknown man's upper body. The director of the museum assigned the task to a taxidermist named Paul Lawson. On June 15, 1948, the cast was completed. Detective Sergeant Lean's intention was to put the bust on public display at the museum with the hope somebody would eventually identify the deceased. This also meant that finally, half a year after his death, the unknown man could be laid to rest. But despite having no family to claim him, he would not be buried in a pauper's grave. For six months, the unknown man had been the main topic of conversation amongst the patrons of the Elephant and Castle Hotel, the local hangout for cemetery staff, funeral directors, police, pathologists, and headstone masons, a macabre group of friends, to be sure. They had grown fond of the unknown man's story and pitied him in death. Together, they decided that the poor soul should not spend eternity in an unmarked grave and took up a collection to give the unknown man a proper funeral. The funeral was held on June 14, 1949, at the West Terrace Cemetery. The service was conducted by Captain E.J. Webb of the Salvation Army, who said, quote, Yes, this man has someone to love him. He is known only to God, end quote. A few days later, a headstone was erected on the grave, a gift from a local mason. It read, Here lies the unknown man who is found at Somerton Beach, 1st December, 1948. But then, something strange started to happen. From time to time, flowers would appear on the grave. It was always at random intervals, never on any specific anniversary of either the funeral or the actual day the unknown man's body was found. On another occasion, the staff of the West Terrace Cemetery noticed violets growing on the gravesite. Somebody had planted them there. The police staked out the cemetery intermittently to try and catch this mysterious mourner, but they were never successful. Somewhere out there, Somebody was grieving for the unknown man, a loved one, a lover, or a friend. Evidently, somebody knew him and missed him, but for some reason, they weren't coming forward. Now that the unknown man had been buried and his death remained unsolved, 
coroner Thomas Erskine Cleland decided it was time to convene a coronial inquest. An inquest is a public proceeding that is convened when a death is sudden or unexplained. The coroner gathers all elements of the investigation thus far and has experts involved in the case expound upon their findings in an attempt to determine the cause of death. Think of an inquest as a kind of trial where the coroner is acting in the capacity of a judge intent on delivering a ruling on the unanswered questions of the case. In the course of an inquest, the coroner is granted a wide range of powers. He can summon any witness, can direct the police to carry out investigations on his behalf, obtain expert reports from qualified professionals, and subpoena documents. Up to this point, the investigation was focused on identifying the unknown man. The focus of the inquest revolved around determining the cause of death. The inquest of the unknown man commenced on June 17, 1949, six months after the body was found on Somerton Beach. At the opening of the inquest, Coroner Cleland laid out the particulars of the case as it stood. One, the identity of the deceased is yet unknown. Two, that his death was not natural. Three, that it almost certainly was not accidental. Cleland added, quote, until the circumstances exclude the possibility that the deceased died through the act of someone other than himself, the possibility of murder must remain in consideration, end quote. Essentially, Cleland was proposing that either the unknown man committed suicide or his death was a homicide. Cleland wanted an answer. The consensus after the initial autopsy on December 2nd, right after the body was found, was that the unknown man had died of cyanosis or inadequate oxygenation of the blood. Essentially, his heart had stopped. What caused his heart to stop was the question, or more pointedly, who? We'll delve into this mid-century whodunit after a brief message. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Now back to the story. On June 17, 1949, coroner Thomas Erskine Cleland began a coronial inquest into the death of the unknown man. In his opinion, the death had not been natural, either suicide or murder. The inquest began with the facts of the case. The unknown man was last seen alive around 7 p.m. and was dead by approximately 2 a.m. For death to happen so quickly, the dose of any such poison would have had to be substantial and therefore detectable. 
Dr. J. M. Dwyer, who had conducted the first autopsy on the deceased, had proposed poison as a cause of death right away. At the inquest, he provided further details regarding his suspicions. He had found blood in the unknown man's stomach, which, in his opinion, was the result of an irritant, poison. However, most common poisons would be readily visible to the naked eye. But Dr. Dwyer couldn't discern any visible signs of poison in the unknown man's stomach. Dr. Dwyer went on to list possible poisons that would not leave any trace. Karari would cause death by asphyxia, but would have to be injected. He found no evidence of a hypodermic needle mark anywhere on the unknown man's body. An insulin overdose would affect the liver, but the unknown man's liver was healthy, so it was ruled out. Botulism had an incubation period of 12 hours, meaning it would take that long for symptoms to appear after initial exposure. But witnesses saw the unknown man alive on Somerton Beach at 7 p.m., and he was dead within roughly seven hours. That time frame ruled out botulism. A barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic were poisons Dr. Dwyer also considered. But these two drugs would take 36 to 48 hours to cause death and would require a large dose. Considering the seven-hour time frame again, these drugs couldn't be responsible. Morphine was a drug that could kill fast. But for death to occur in the allotted time frame, the size of the dose would have to have been substantial and therefore easily detectable. Also a no-go. The samples of the unknown man's body Dr. Dwyer had taken for further analysis were sent to Deputy Government Chemical Analyst Robert James. James testified at the inquest that he conducted additional tests for common poisons, such as cyanides, alkaloids, barbiturates, and carbolic acid, but found no sign of any of them present. James made clear, however, he was speaking of poisons taken by mouth. Some poisons, if injected, would be destroyed in the tissue, liver, and kidneys. But Dr. Dwyer had already testified he found no hypodermic needle marks on the unknown man's body. If the unknown man did die by poison, James believed it was a rare poison that was responsible. He made it clear, however, that he didn't mean the poison itself was rare. He meant it was a poison rarely used with suicidal or homicidal intent. Professor John Burton Clellan, professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, who had found the Tamam Shud paper in the unknown man's trousers, was also called to testify. For clarification purposes, Professor John Burton Cleland was in no way related to Coroner Thomas Erskine Cleland presiding over the inquest. Professor Cleland had considered the evidence and was of the opinion that the death of the unknown man was not natural, which was widely agreed upon already. But he also believed without a doubt, if poison was taken, it was for the purpose of suicide. To back up his claim, he made reference to the paper in the unknown man's trousers, Tamam Should. He believed this was indisputably a suicide note. But that was just one man's opinion. There was just too much peculiar evidence for a clear-cut answer to be agreed upon. Next to testify at the inquest was Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide. Professor Hicks also agreed poison had to be responsible for the death of the unknown man. He suggested two possible poisons, which would not leave a trace. 
Since the inquest was a public forum, Professor Hicks declined to say their names out loud, instead writing them down for the coroner's eyes only. This was largely to keep the public from hearing the names of two undetectable lethal poisons, lest anybody get any funny ideas. Written on the slip of paper were the two drugs, digitalis and strophanthin. Digitalis is a drug produced from the foxglove plant. It's used to treat congestive heart failure and an irregular heartbeat. The wrong dose could easily be deadly. Strophanthin is a rare glycoside derived from certain African plants. A Somali tribe once used it to poison the tips of their arrows. A massive dose of either of these drugs, according to Professor Hicks, could cause death in a short time frame and leave no trace. But Professor Hicks admitted there was a flaw in his theory. Digitalis or strophanthin would cause the victim to vomit, but no signs of vomiting were found around the unknown man's body. In fact, the contents of the stomach contained the unknown man's last meal approximately three hours prior, a baked pastry. If there had been vomiting present around the body, Professor Hicks would have been confident in endorsing his assessment. But since there wasn't, he couldn't. Professor Hicks theorized the unknown man could have vomited, then been brought to Somerton Beach and left to die. If this could be confirmed, it would remove any of the doubts associated with the time of death and the poison used, but that was unlikely. When Detective Sergeant Lean finally testified, he said, quote, There is no fact that I know of which points towards suicide and abolishes the possibility of murder. I believe he died an unnatural death, but how, I cannot say. A physical specimen as he would not just go to the beach and die. The words tamam should mean the end or the finish that could have been placed in his pocket by the person who caused his death, so I cannot attach any special significance to that." End quote. On June 21, 1949, Coroner Cleland made his closing remarks. He concluded that the evidence presented was too inconclusive to warrant a finding. He therefore put an end to the inquest, sine die adjourned indefinitely. The unknown man buried and the inquest at a close. The police hoped the considerable amount of publicity over the last couple of days would dredge up some more leads, but that wasn't the case. The one piece of evidence the police really wanted to get their hands on was the missing copy of Fitzgerald's Rubaiyat from which the Tamam Shud slip of paper was torn. Lean thought if they could find the book, they could then trace the unknown man back to the city or town he was in before arriving in Adelaide. The newspapers continued to run stories about the book, helping the police with their search. The book could still be in a library, a bookstore, on somebody's bookshelf at home. It had to be out there somewhere. On the evening of July 22nd, Roland Francis, a businessman in the Adelaide suburb of Glenelg, read in the newspapers about the police looking for the missing copy of the Rubaiyat. He knew about the unknown man found on Somerton Beach. It had been the topic of conversation around town for months. But reading about the missing Rubaiyat struck a chord. Francis recalled his brother-in-law reading a copy of the book when they went for a ride in his car. After the road trip, Francis had found the book on the floor of his car and thrown it in the glove box. He hadn't thought twice about it. 
until now. He checked the glove box of his car, and sure enough, Francis found the copy of the Rubaiyat. Turning to the rear page, he was amazed to find a section had been torn out, exactly as the newspapers had described. At long last, Detective Sergeant Lean was about to catch a break in an investigation that had frustrated him in every turn. But little did he know, the discovery of the Rubaiyat was to be just another maddening puzzle piece in the case of the unknown man. Next week, we conclude our investigation into the mysterious case colloquially called Tamam Shud. The discovery of the Rubaiyat was only the tip of the proverbial iceberg, providing two of the most intriguing pieces of this unsolved case, a phone number and a secret code. We'll also delve into the various theories about who the unknown man could have possibly been and current efforts to have the body exhumed so modern-day methods, namely DNA testing, can be applied to help ascertain his identity at long last. They say that every man dies twice, when you leave your body and when your name is said for the very last time. The unknown man has rested in Adelaide for nearly 70 years, with flowers mysteriously adorning his simple grave. Somebody knows this man's name. It's high time we hear it. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of Parcast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Joseph Muscat and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 